our church, we are a church that subscribes to a reformational style of preaching, and I should just call it a biblical style, biblical model of preaching, and it's called exegetical preaching. Exegetical is a word you may not use every day, but it just simply means to explain out the meaning of the scriptures, and this ought to be done regularly, we believe, through whole books of the Bible, and that is why we've been in Acts for over a year at this point, slowly walking through. Uh, And it's important to note that although this is the common thing that we do, a pastor's role is not simply to provide a running commentary of each and every last detail of the Bible. Recently, I've, I've become acquainted with a Um, a helpful summary of what reformational preaching was expected to cover in a single sermon or in a single day, whether it was a morning and evening service concerning not just the exegesis, which is what I just explained, but the application, which is also necessary. So we said just recently, you, you don't fully understand the scriptures unless you understand the impact of what it means. So we have to understand what the scripture says, means, and what impact that has on our our life. And uh, this is the approach. And so what I want to inform you of is every pastor's job, according to scripture. And I'm just going to demonstrate it briefly uh, for various reasons, all of which I'm not going to explain to you right now. (laughs) But for various reasons, I would like... Um, to use Titus, you could go here if you want, or you could mark it in your Bible. And I'm doing this. One of the reasons that I want to communicate this is I want you to know exactly what's going on in each portion of my sermon. I want it to, uh, I want to be able to give you um, words that you know, and you understand how this relates to the meaning of the text or the application of the text, which are the two major pieces of every sermon. And some of us often get confused as to which is which and why what is being said is is being said. So there are four things uh, that were expected, technically six, but there's a side A and side B on some of these. There are four things that you should expect in application in most sermons. First would be instruction or, a beautiful word, confutation. (laughs) Confutation. Instruction or confutation. The pastor's job is to instruct in good theology and warn you away from false theology, false doctrine. Titus is the book that I'll reference throughout all of these because we've seen these. We've walked through this whole book together uh, with me. Titus 1, 9, as a summary statement, says, He must, that is the pastor, hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and to rebuke those who contradict it. Instruction, confutation. Secondly, you should expect exhortation or dehortation to duty. That is uh, two sides of the same coin. We must apply the text in calling you to action. Exhortation, do this. Or the opposite of that, dehortation, do not do this. 
Those are the two sides. Titus 2 is full of um, this. Titus 2, 1 says, But as for you, teach whatever accords with sound doctrine. That is, not sound doctrine itself, but the thing that accords with it. The lifestyle that accords with it. Verse 2, Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness, etc. So on. Instruction, confutation, exhortation, dehortation, consolation. This is sometimes the only reason that people come to sermons. It's consolation. It should not be the only thing, but for sure it is sweet. We must also, as pastors, bring consolation. That is comfort or encouragement from God through his word, specifically in the promises of scripture that apply to us, to our weakness, to many other things, uh, because we are a failing people and need a wonderful and great God and Savior. And so just for example, Titus 3, 6 and 7, <clears throat> he says that we were saved uh, not because of works done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, Listen to this, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, listen to this, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Uh, because of what Christ has done, we have a, a future promise and a hope that is unshakable. That, and unpacking that in application would be uh, a form of consolation or encouragement to the weary soul. Or the believer who's doing well and just needs God's promises to keep going. Lastly, there is exhortation to trial. Exhortation to trial, which essentially is just calling us to self-examination. So if we were to run across the uh, text is Titus 3.10, which says a person who stirs up division after warning him once or twice have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful he is self-condemned. <clears throat> now, obviously, it's talking about a person who is in the church, who calls himself a Christian, but who is not. And so, because I can't see uh, into your soul, and no one can, uh, but God alone, it is right for us to be challenged, uh, even if we're not participating in those sorts of things, to be warned away from the things that we ought not to do and examine ourselves if we become whatever uh, is in the text, bitter or so forth. <clears throat> so remember that a pastor's job is to explain the meaning of the text and to, according to that specific text, to unpack the, um, how this applies to the believer in those various different ways, six of them technically. <clears throat> and the first part, of course, we do is called exegesis. And what we want to come to as, as we look at this text today is to recognize <clears throat> that both of these are inspired by the Holy Spirit and written by Luke for a particular purpose. And so, in order to get at the meaning, uh, where we might become an heir or, or um, be guilty of missing the forest through the trees is to get bogged down on if you're reading the text and you're like, oh, her body was washed and put in an upper room. And we spent a lot of time talking about things like that, which might be nice to read in a commentary, but 
insofar as it's the meaning of the text is inconsequential at all, we ought to skip over details that are not pertinent to the meaning of the scripture, unless you want me to preach for three hours. <laughs> but I assume that <clears throat> you will do your homework from week to week and, and be prepared to look at the meaning of the text. And so in this text today, I'm really going to focus on <clears throat> just the main points of the narrative and try to draw application from there. And so there's lots of things that I won't cover regarding background material or, or whatever, um, but I will uh, draw your attention to specific things and then apply them from there. So the, the first thing, as we get into Acts chapter 9, that we should note in verse 32 is the narrative now, which has been on Paul or Saul as he's been called for a whole ch- for the all of chapter 9, now shifts back to Peter. There was, Peter was the main character before Stephen shows up, and, and then it went off and had Stephen and Philip and Paul. And now we're coming back to Peter, and he's going to take over as the main character for a while. And as it shifts back, <clears throat> what we have now is the appearing of two miracle stories, Back to back. And there are parallels that I want to draw with each other to see why they're supposed to be read together and to draw out the meaning. And I also want to show you um, the parallels that are in the Gospels because as you read these, you might even recall, go, that sounds really familiar to some things that Jesus has done. And so I want to start by drawing those connections because Luke is is trying to set up the story in such a way that <clears throat> you understand his theological message. So Aeneas is our first character. And Aeneas we have in verse 32 through verse 35. <clears throat> and Aeneas is a man that's bedridden and paralyzed for eight years. And he is told, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise, make your bed Uh, rise and make your bed, which sounds very familiar to the Gospels. You should remember, and I'm going to remind you, that in Luke's Gospel, in chapter 5, 18 through 26, uh, we hear uh, uh, the famous story of the man who is paralyzed and can't walk. So his friends try to get to Jesus, and they can't find a way in the door, so they go through the roof. And Jesus, seeing their faith, pronounces forgiveness of sins, which um, then is challenged because, you know, only God forgives sins. And so Jesus, to show he is the God-man, the son of man, and has authority to forgive sins, says to the paralyzed man, similar words, listen to it. It says, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And then the man immediately went home and they saw him and all glorified God. Peter here specifically is paralleled with Jesus. And he says, not Peter heal you, but rather Jesus Christ heals you. And just like Jesus said in the Gospels, rise, make your bed, rise and make your bed. The authority and power of this healing is sourced in Jesus Christ. And Peter simply mediates that. 
And then back to back, then we have another story. And some of you will even know, especially if you're in a Pentecostal tradition, I think I've heard this a billion times, this story, uh, Talitha Kumi, Jesus comes and he is asked to heal Jairus's daughter specifically. And here we see Tabitha, very similar sounding um, for reasons, of course, Luke's purpose. Luke intentionally parallels a story in Mark chapter 5. And I'm just going to summarize and draw the parallels for you so you see them. But in verse 35 of Mark chapter 5, Peter accompanies Jesus up into a house. And the first thing that he encounters is the weeping mourners. Just as in this text, there's weeping widows. And when he arrives, Jesus puts everybody outside. Peter, like manner, puts everybody outside. And then as he arrives, he commands her, Talitha Kumi, which is how she arises from the dead. And in our text here specifically, we are told in verse 40, that he kneeled down to pray and turning to the body. He doesn't say Talitha Kumi. He says Tabitha Kumi, almost identical <clears throat> to his native language, arise as it is in the English. So although Peter is involved in, in real historical uh, miracles that Luke is not um, fabricating or anything of the like, He specifically is telling us the stories that have resemblance to the ministry of Christ Jesus. Why might he be doing that? Why is it almost identical at places? The the way the story unfolds, he's not making these things up, but he's chosen specific stories so that you go like, "Didn't, didn't Jesus do that? Peter's doing what Jesus did. And we see this all throughout Acts. And one of the primary reasons is one of the primary reasons of all of Acts. And you guys all know what it is. You can quote it when I ask you, right? Um, if you haven't already, I've told you, you should, have, you should memorize or at least read it so many times you can paraphrase Acts chapter 1 verse 8, because this is the whole meaning of Acts, and this is exactly what Luke is bringing up again and again and again. Verse, chapter 1, verse 8, you will receive power. This is Jesus speaking to the apostles when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Um, you can think of another one in the Gospels just to explain power. Some of us don't connect it the way we ought to. He called the 12 together. This is during his earthly ministry and gave them power and authority over demons to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. The point of this text, very simply, and the reason it looks a lot like the gospels is because Acts as a whole is commuting that is communicating that the ministry of Jesus Christ is alive and well. It has not ceased when Jesus went to heaven. In fact, it is active from heaven through his church, specifically his apostles, and we, we're going to say his prophets in a second, 
in, in the world, the, the ministry of Jesus Christ continues by the spirit of Christ in the hearts of believers. And they, they preach the same message as Christ <laughs> so that the church of Christ might be built up. This is what is going on. There is a, uh, we saw the beginning of Jesus' ministry in the Gospels, and we see the continuation of Jesus' ministry through the apostles and the church, uh, some of which I'll say a little bit here in a second. But, but this is the central point of the book, that <clears throat> the, the power and authority of Christ has been given to the church, and the church is carrying out its marching orders in the witness it brings to the world. And this is, is testified to by miraculous signs and wonders. Let, let me say something about that for a second. This is doctrinal instruction, and then I'll do confutation. This period that we're reading in Acts is unique in that it bears an extraordinary outpouring of miracles, which began with Jesus in Cana. It started then in the ministry of Christ and not with the ministry of the Baptist. Ministry of the Baptist, he was an amazing man, but he was not working the same way that Elijah was or Isaiah was. He was simply preaching the gospel in the wilderness and baptizing in light of the Christ to come. But Jesus comes and there is this explosion of miracles, namely whole cities getting healed. I've never seen a hospital emptied out in our day, but if that ministry was going on uh, in, in, Christ, in Christ's day, and it was continuing in portions in the days of, of Peter and the rest of the apostles, <clears throat> the New Testament prophets and apostles, as we learn in Ephesians chapter 2, are founding the church. They are bringing um, specifically, uh, Acts chapter 2 tells us that this is what's going to happen in this time frame. And we learn that we must understand that, that miracles are necessary at this point in, um, in an abundant manner because there is brand new scriptural revelation. There is Thus saith the Lord that I cannot say. <laughs> the only way that I can say that is I say, this is what the scripture says, and here's what it means, thus saith the Lord. I cannot say uh, brand new revelation that has not existed before and say, thus saith the Lord. But that's exactly what was going on in those days. I, I There is... <clears throat> Bold proclamation. I'll just use one example. This is Luke 17, 21. Jesus says, Behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Or at the end of Luke, we see that Jesus says that the law, the Psalms, and the prophets were all being fulfilled before their very eyes. Unique very unique psalm or excuse me i i i uh love the section in in i want to say it's mark i didn't look this up before 
But there is a section where Jesus reads from Isaiah 61. He says that the the blind will be healed and and the prisoners will be set free and the gospel will be proclaimed. And then he sits down and they're all on bated breath looking at him. He says, today in your hearing, this scripture has been fulfilled. Because there is a unique period whereby all of the prophecies about Christ are coming true. And he is unveiling the message of the gospel, which is for all nations. And so new scripture is being written. And to verify these things, there is this um, amazing outpouring of miracles, which we uh, should not expect to see today. Not every day is the prophecy fulfilled. The serpent's head shall be crushed by the seed of the woman. But that is what happened then. And now the gospel, because of those fulfillments, those things that were accomplished in Christ Jesus, the suffering servant in Isaiah, because he died and bore the sins of all of God's people. Now is the time that the gospel can travel to the ends of the earth. Now, let me, because it's so manifest in our day that this is not the normal teaching about miracles and how they work um, because most uh, Baptists can be called Bapticostals. Most uh, Baptists have some form of Pentecostal theology. Let me just say that the claim of apostleship, as we see here today, is ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. There's nobody uh, who claims to be an apostle who's recognized as a universal founding member of Christ Church. It, it just, they simply don't exist. And further than that, no one is emptying hospitals. No whole cities are, are getting healed in the same way that they are happening. Uh, no one's walking by Bill Johnson's shadow and, and, and coming alive or whatever. Um, no one is undergoing this sort of thing. And we shouldn't expect that because there's no scriptural warrant for it. Ephesians 4 is the place that everybody likes to go without recognizing Ephesians 2, Ephesians 3, all of the pastoral epistles, Acts, and so forth. Although I don't want to argue extensively today, as I have in the past, from a thoroughly Reformed perspective, um, the, the Scripture is, is the final word and authority and not private revelation. Um, and the normative experience today is not that you and I would be able to go to a dead person and tell them to get up in prayer. That shouldn't be our, our expectation. Now, <clears throat> stepping back into the main point of the text, <clears throat> if this is the extension of Christ's work through the church, well, what is, Luke, what is the goal of Christ's work in Acts. Well, Luke doesn't leave us to guess. Read with me verse 35 and verse 42, the ends of both of these accounts that happen. So the first one, Aeneas healed from being paralyzed for eight years and confined to his bed. Now in verse 35, it says, after he arose, that all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him and they turned to the Lord. Now, after Dorcas is healed, resurrected from from the dead, um, 
having to die again later. Feel sorry for her to a degree. <laughs> Verse 42, uh, it says this, and it became known throughout all Joppa and many believed in the Lord. What we see is that the point of these miracles is to lead people to hear the gospel and, uh, and to bring about their conversion. <laughs> that is, true conversion is described in two major aspects, repentance and faith. And that's exactly what we see in the text itself. Let's look at verse 35, uh, which is repentance. They turned to the Lord. First, as Aeneas is healed, um, everybody in the area, in the two areas mentioned, turn to the Lord. The term that we use is repentance. They were walking in the way of the world. And then they turned into the kingdom of God in Christ Jesus. They heard the proclamation of the kingdom and they turned. We, we must understand, although this is only briefly described, like it's just a summary statement, repentance if it's true repentance, which is what we should expect, then the inhabitants of, of Lydda and Sharon underwent saving repentance. That means they embraced the gospel. A word about repentance here is <clears throat> that a repentance is when a person, by the power of the Holy Spirit, becomes aware of the evils of their sin. And thusly is filled with sorrow and remorse, a godly sorrow over these things that we have done that has incurred guilt. And therefore we detest these things because God has shown it to us and we hope and pray for pardon in Christ. We pray for forgiveness. And further, we see in true repentance, that there is no other hope for us beyond Jesus Christ. And so we pray for the strength of grace and endeavor to live as a, a disciple of Jesus and not a disciple of the world. We were under the master of the world and we turn and subscribe to the school of Christ and say, uh, ask for forgiveness. <clears throat> as you hear, I can't even define repentance without saying what faith means as well. You see, I, I use it in my definition because it's two sides of the same coin. True repentance uh, must be defined this way and, and conversion must be defined this way because a repentance is turning from something to another thing. So a, a repentance is a turning to a new thing to be believed, specifically asking for seeking a new Lord and having new desires to obey him. So verse 42, helpfully just describes it the other way, not as turning, but as believing. These two things are, 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 are not mutually exclusive. In fact, they're supposed to be read together because what's going on here is saving faith. Many believed in the Lord Jesus. Saving faith is the, the fruit of the new birth. That comes first. The spirit illumines the sinner, causes him to see his sin. And faith is when we, having seen our sin and heard about Christ, we <clears throat> receive uh, 
and rests upon Christ alone for our salvation as he's offered to us in the gospel. The, the gospel's preached at a particular time or, or spoken in conversation or what have you. And the person who sees their sin and sees Christ as the only hope believes and receives all that Christ is for us by faith and embraces that. This is the glorious uh, thing that the Lord has done. The miracle of Tabitha or the miracle of Aeneas led to conversion, led to repentance and faith. It led to those people going, whatever that message is, I want to hear it. And when they heard it, they, by the power of the Spirit, believed it. <clears throat> now, let me bring us to some uh, consolation in a way. And, and let me just ask for I take a drink. What is the greater miracle that occurs in this text? Some of you will have thought about the two miracle stories, but don't mess this point up. The greatest miracle that occurs in this text is true repentance and faith comes. That is a greater miracle than being raised up from a sickbed, being resurrected from the dead is the salvation of a sinner and the gift of eternal life. <clears throat> and it is because of this. Let me unpack it so that you feel um, strengthened in your faith. We, mankind, is so broken in sin that we can be described, according to Ephesians 2, as dead in sin and wholly sold out to it. We can even be called in that same text as, by nature, children of wrath from our very birth, from the womb, that is deserving of God's condemnation for the sinners that we are born Born sinners, born without hope, born under the wrath of God. But it is God from all eternity who has predestined to save a people for himself in Jesus Christ, who in the fullness of time sends forth his own son, born miraculously, the only one ever who's not been born of, in the ordinary way, but rather conceived by the power of the Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, so that he is not the recipient of original sin like you and I. He is born sinless, upright as the second Adam, Paul will call him. He alone escapes the condemnation that is due to sinners by their very nature. And it is he who, even in a greater way than Adam, Adam lived in the garden. And he, he tended God's upright universe where there's no sin and no fall. And he could not succeed in his task to offer God righteousness in a perfect world. Jesus is afflicted by sin and assailed by the devil and um, is scorned by God's very own people and tested again and again and again in a sin-soaked, depraved world. He, as the greater Adam, succeeds in providing a righteousness for God's people so that when he goes to the cross, 
The Lord pins on him all the sins of the elect for whom he had a righteousness, for whom he was born, for whom he was baptized, for whom he died, for whom he was raised. And it is through 2,000 years of history that God, even longer than that, but this is miraculous in and of itself, that God has propelled his gospel through his church who are scared and cowards and failing and need tons of help ourselves through ordinary men and women and children come and preach the gospel and speak the gospel to one another such that miraculously at a point in time, God in his providence brings you near to the word of Christ and sets you apart and you hear the word and are convicted by the spirit and are sovereignly brought to your knees whereby the Spirit breathes life into you and you have a new heart and have been made a new creation from eternity past. God does all this and lands it at a point in time where you become converted, where you actually undergo repentance and faith. It's no small miracle. It's the plan from all eternity. It's the greatest thing ever. That's the real miracle. That you could be saved. That I could be saved. There's no hope for us. Not in ourselves, not in anything else, but in the miracle that God has wrought in us and the fact that he himself will bring it to perfection. (laughs) That's the greater miracle that has happened. Now, let me, in light of that, exhort us to duty on the basis of this text, because <clears throat> what we can take away is not go out and start trying to raise the dead. <laughs> Don't go to the cemetery near you and start praying over the graves. That, that's not the goal. Uh, rather, the, the goal is to be part of the ordinary ministry. Now, the apostles and New Testament prophets that are surrounded, we could define that later according to Ephesians chapter, chapter 2 and 3 and 4. Um, If you want to talk about that, we can. But where this connects really with us is that although this commission and the extraordinary authority goes to the the apostles, their mission is way beyond the scope of anything that they could ever do. This mission comprehends the the officers of the church in their historical um, unfoldings, including myself, but it also includes every single one of us. I can't go to all the ends of the earth and neither can you. We, this is the duty of God's church and it is the commission that is given from heaven to us. We could say that this is codified in the great commission. Go to all the nations and baptize them and teach them to obey all things that I've commanded you. But here we ought to pursue not lesser miracles. I'm not saying not to pray for those things. I pray for healing for you guys all the time. But we ought to endeavor for the greater miracle. That is the conversion of those who are around us. True repentance and faith. It should be endeavored by us because part of the miracle is we get to participate in in God saving the world. Just an amazing reality None of us can produce this change in somebody, nor can any sinner uh, act upon the gospel call 
nonetheless, it is God's grace that causes us to, when we speak, have this person who has been designated by God called the elect, who is effectually called and reborn at a moment in time. I've seen it (laughs) with my very eyes. I've undergone it, and so have you. And it's through the ordinary means. So I'm exhorting us to be the ordinary means of grace. So just a few points here so that you can take them and live them out throughout all of your life, but especially in the holiday season, especially when you'll see more of your family and would travel and stuff like that. Um, The first question that you need to think about yourself is, are you ready in a moment's notice to accurately and succinctly present the gospel? Are you ready to do that at any time? Could you reason with somebody about why they deserve condemnation from God, why they are a sinner, and that they must repent of their sin and trust in Jesus Christ? Of course, everyone who's truly converted can say how they've made it to Christ. But on the other hand, some of us, though we are capable, we have not adequately prepared and are not ready In my study this week, I felt extraordinarily burdened uh, by this, about my own, own, um, as I went through some self-examination. And I wonder how many of you feel truly prepared right this second to preach the gospel to anybody around you. And so if you desire to do that after our uh, most recent class, I think I'd like to teach a class if you guys would be helpful or helped by refreshing um, and having some solid things in your mind for preaching the gospel or even how to get into those conversations. Um, just let, let me or one of the elders know about that. <clears throat> but for everyone who feels confident in a moment's notice right now, somebody walks in, sits next to you and goes, what's this gospel thing that this preacher's talking about? And you're like, oh, I'm ready. Uh, For those of you who feel confident, how are you currently pursuing this in your life? What are the ways that you are currently speaking the faith to your coworkers, to your unbelieving family members, to your customers, to your acquaintances, to friends, to strangers? How is it um, or when is it the last attempt where you, you went out and said, oh, I'm going to share the gospel again with this person, or I'm going to just find a random person who will talk to me and I'm going to share the gospel. With when have you purposed in your heart to be the means of salvation, be the means of God's miracle to another? I think as you examine yourself, you like, like myself will probably feel guilty for being slothful and we need to challenge ourselves. Do we think that God is going to be less merciful than we are? No, God is abundant in mercy. Is he unwilling to save? Certainly, if anyone turns from their sins, they have the promise that they will have sweet and perfect, well, sweet and ever-increasingly wonderful fellowship with God. They will be reconciled. All their sins will be forgiven. You can tell anybody that if you turn to Christ and trust in him for your righteousness, you will be saved. 
we ought to encourage ourselves regularly that um, there are so many who are lost and who do not have the sweet savor of friendship with God. That's what Christ has brought us into. Not just forgiveness of sin, but even better than that, we get to know God intimately in our lives and have him be our strength and our comfort and our glory. Now, let me just say that I think part of the reason the West is in decline, as I think about ourselves, is the failure of the church to accomplish what is being accomplished here in this text, to be the means of salvation, that is, the bold witness for Jesus in every realm of our life. Yes, every realm of our life. Yes, every realm of our life. Everything we should do should be robustly Christian. It's the only way to go. Everything else is falling apart and going to die. The thing that will remain and grow is the kingdom of God. Jesus taught it plainly. We ought not to be held back or have a lack of activity because we act cowardly. That is a great sin. And so many of us, myself at times, shrink back because we're scared of being polarizing because we don't really like it when folks don't like us. But I ask you, if we are truly upstanding in our actions towards God and towards other people and we're loving our neighbor, so what if people don't like you? God likes you and you actually like them. You love them well. Do not believe that the darkness will conquer the light. Now, let me give you one practical thing you might do, especially in this season where, <clears throat> where you might be hosting more in your life. Uh, brothers and sisters, let us become active and engaged in this area of loving our neighbor, sharing the gospel with anybody we can, and being diligent about uh, purposing to do it. Like Write it down. It's part of my weekly routine. It'd be glorious. And tell them about how to have fellowship with God in Christ. <clears throat> One way to pursue this, this holiday season, is finding somebody in your life who needs relational charity. Relational charity. And what I mean by that is <clears throat> when you provide hospitality to another in this um, October, November, and December season, um, there will be many who are lonely, maybe somebody lonely at your work. They need some relational charity. What, what they need is somebody to invite them in to the joyous fellowship of your home. They need you to uh, meet that need, the, the spiritual need, which is true loneliness is only met by being in fellowship with God. This is how it is ultimately solved. Or many will be emotionally broken in this time of year. And they will need the experience of the healing of the gospel that can happen as you eat and drink and talk around the table. Some may be anxious about finances and you can tell them what it's like 
to live in a world and live in relation with the God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills and who's numbered my days and who knows exactly what his plan is for me. And all those riches are mine in Christ Jesus and can be theirs if they are to embrace the gospel. There are so many emotional needs that, that aren't just met through charity um, in, in terms of a financial donation. We should be about that, certainly. But <clears throat> I take just a note from Dorcas here. These, these, these widows um, experience a handout, some charity from her, and yet they grieve over her because she's relationally in their life. <clears throat> now, I don't know if, if these ones are some of the ones who are already believers. It seems to be the case in the text. But we can show the same kinds of charity in our lives, inviting people in so that they might freely experience the fruit of the gospel, which is a changed life. You are the fruit of the gospel. <laughs> your changed life, your realistic view of your own sinfulness and the grace of God that can superabound that. This is what we actually need, and this is the greatest miracle. And you have an opportunity to be a part of this wonderful work of God in the world. Let us pray.